I'm Gary Nall. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today, Who Controls the World? And who is my guest? Well, this program today is based upon the work of Danny Schechter, the news dissector. Danny was one of America's foremost liberal uh, human rights activists. He did dozens of films he wrote a lot of articles, and whether it was in Africa or uh, in Asia, in the United States, and this is one that starts off in Wall Street. Danny was also an economist. He graduated from the London School of Economics. He was a professional friend. In fact, for the last two years of his life, he had an office up in my office at 83rd and Broadway, and uh, I provided him with all the tools he needed to do his latest production. In fact, he said, Gary, why don't we do a production together? And we were going to work on one called Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? It was a sequel to the one I did on Poverty, Inc. I'm finishing it up this year. Danny was in Poverty, Inc. But this one's all Danny, and it's he's at his best. This was 2015. He passed at the age of 72 from cancer. Um, I offered him, of course, every opportunity if he wanted to try the alternative methods, but that was not his choice. Uh, he was positive right up to the last and worked right up to the last of his uh, life. So let's take a look at one of his seminal works because it's as accurate and honest today as it was when this was first released. In fact, I was there to introduce the film and him in New York City at a uh, film theater down on the Lower East Side. Now to Danny Schechter's Who Controls the World? Welcome to Wall Street, the epicenter of financial power in America, perhaps the money capital of the world. The globally oriented financial firms based here in the New York Stock Exchange that operates here have extraordinary influence on the politics and policies of this country. No one has elected them, and in fact, these financial firms are trying to undo the regulations and new laws governing them imposed by the Congress. The people on Wall Street are just one of a number of unelected and very powerful forces that operate in the shadows, behind the scenes. They're the media uh, forces, uh, they're, they're the military and industrial forces, they're the corporate forces, and they're the forces that we'll be investigating in this television series which asks a question that most of our media does not. Who rules America? Every four years, Americans go to the polls to elect a president. It's a ritual that goes back to the founding of the nation in 1776. 
our economy seemingly on the brink of collapse. High unemployment. Every four years, politics and politicians dominate our television screens, dominate our news, and dominate our national discourse. I'm Ron Paul, and I approve this message. When independent watchdogs called this president. President Barack Obama is running for re-election. Mitt Romney stood with Big Oil for their tax breaks, attacking higher mileage standards in renewables. So when he is attacking and being attacked by Republicans. He said he would turn this economy around in three years, or he'd be looking at a one-term proposition. We're here to collect, all right? The two parties may be fighting a political war, but pundits label it a horse race, fueled literally by billions of dollars in campaign contributions used for pervasive Welcome advertising. To a place where one president's failed policies really hit home. Welcome to Obamaville. The focus is on political personalities, not the forces they represent. A large industry of commentators and pollsters are paid to tell us who's ahead and who's behind. The focus invariably is on the candidates, not the issues. But everyone knows the campaigns are run behind the scenes by professional strategists, media experts, and political advisors. Then there's going to be a one-term proposition. The political ads are cynical and slick. Almost every word is scripted. Symbols trump substance. Slogans are market-tested, aimed at promoting perception and reinforcing prejudices. Marketing is the mission. Selling, not telling. On one level, this whole spectacle is presented as a triumph of democracy, as if the candidate who wins will run the country. But being in office doesn't necessarily mean being in power. Americans believe they are determining their future. Are they? Do most know or are they ever told who rules America? I just think that these people, uh, you can't really see them. <laughs> yeah? That's what I think. The, the people who rule America? People are behind the screen. They are behind the screen. Invisible? To the general public. And do you think people really know what's going on? To some extent, yes, and to some extent, no. To what extent, yes. To what extent, no. About 50-50. Who rules America? There's no one right answer. Pulitzer Prize-winning American historian Eric Foner says it's a question that raises many more questions about power that works from the shadows. Who rules America? Uh, you know, there's no one single easily defined group who rules America, but I think you know, not just now, but I think for a couple of generations, we have had a, a, what, what the sociologist C. Wright Mills called in the 1950s a power elite, an interlocking set of connections of people in business, in politics, in the military, <clears throat> who pretty much determine the parameters of possible change. It's not that they rule America in a conspiratorial way, and of course there are elected officials, but the leeway of those officials is constrained by what you might call the permanent government. Presidents come and go, but there's a kind of permanent establishment, what, 
you know, President Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, but now it's more a military-financial complex um, that really, you know, determ as I say, determines the limits. We're at the Left Forum, a gathering of progressive intellectuals and scholars and students held every year here in New York City. There are 1,400 speakers this year. They don't agree on everything, but they do agree that America is not the democracy it claims to be. They all want to know who rules America. Professor Stanley Aronowitz writes about the research of this man, C. Wright Mills, who a half century ago wrote about the existence of a power elite that activists today refer to as the 1%, the people who run things. His contribution to understanding the nature of power in America is in the first place to identify three institutional orders that really together form the power elite, an elite that is generally speaking unresponsive to the people, unresponsive to democratic liberties and democratic procedures. And he said the three groups were the corporate capitalist uh, institutions, the military, and the third one was the top layer of the political uh, directorate, he called them, and they, were, they are the national uh, leaders like the executive branch of government, not even Congress. He said Congress was in the middle levels of power. It doesn't really share the decision to make war, the major economic policies and so on. It participates at some level, but basically it's out of power. And he said that really has undercut the whole pretense of progressive and of representative government. This may be why in recent surveys, only 7 to 9 percent of the American people in both parties believe that the Congress, the so-called People's House of Government, is representative and capable of solving the country's problems. If politicians are trapped in a polarized and highly partisan stalemate, who does exercise the power to decide what the country's priorities and policies should be? We asked J.K. Fowler, an editor of The Mantle, a political magazine. I think it's extremely complicated. I think there's not one particular answer for it. Um, I think that a lot of the stuff going on in America right now is being led by money, and moneyed interest in Washington in particular. But I think there's a bubbling movement from the ground up as well that's happening. Is there a ruling class in America, or is that a, an outdated concept? No, I'm a strong believer that there's a, there's a class in particular in particular in New York City where, but I don't think it's they're not hidden away in some room with nefarious deeds in mind. It's it's more it's more structural. There's certain clubs they go to. There's certain streets they live on. They're interacting with one another more. We put that question to Erin Crowell, a 30-year-old working-class mother from a small town in Wisconsin who is working two jobs while pursuing her education. If I was to ask you, like, who runs America, who rules America, what, what is your, you know, what, what is your perception of that? People that have the money to do so, you know. Um, you know, people that, that, that have the money and the, the resources to send a lobbyist to Washington, you know. Like, nobody from my town could afford to send a lobbyist, you know, and say, hey, Harley-Davidson is, you know, threatening to, to move their plants to China unless, you know, everybody takes pay cuts. 
you know, and could literally shut our town down, you know. We can't afford to defend ourselves. Do you feel, as an American citizen, that you have power in our, in our country? Do you feel as if you have the ability to get your dream achieved? I feel like it's slipping away. Um, I don't think I do, you know, because it feels like the closer and closer I would get to that, you know, like just a dream for me is to finish college, you know, and take care of myself and take care of my son, you know, but even that now, you know, and, and, and I understand like most, a lot of people in my position aren't even able to get that far now. So if the citizens who are supposed to be in charge don't feel they are, who does? What we found is that by and large, it's the wealthiest Americans who call the shots through unelected institutions that drive agendas in their own interests. There may be a cabal running things, but in the end, the state and the system merges, argues Canadian political analyst Leo Panitch. I don't think there's an external force controlling the American state. The American state is capitalist to its core in the very way it's organized. It doesn't do it because there's too much influence from Wall Street. It does it because it is structurally embedded with Wall Street. It doesn't do it because there's too much influence from a military-industrial complex. It does it because the military-industrial complex is inside the state, is funded by the state, is part of the state. Sure, there are people who conspire and there's people who act in secret, but capitalism is not a conspiracy. The people who have the wealth, they're not a conspiracy. We know who they are. Uh, we know how they collect this money, they take it out of our pocket, they put it in theirs, and it's not a big mystery. There seems to be corporate forces, in addition to Wall Street, that essentially help guide our political and economic direction. Leading are America's top corporations. Political analyst Michael Clare has studied the political economy of oil for 20 years and says a lack of media coverage keeps the public in the dark. Does the media cover it? The media doesn't cover this for the most part. In fact, the media is largely in league because of the advertising dollars that the oil and gas lobby provides. They're very heavily dependent on advertising revenue, so they're very careful in what they say. Who are they accountable to? Are there laws really controlling and regulating what they do? There are laws, but they have been written largely by their lobbyists to favor them. So, in fact, uh, the, the laws, for the most part, are, are in their favor, not in the favor of most Americans. Is there an issue where we've seen this very clearly, where the interests of the oil industry or the, or the energy industry is in conflict with the interests of Americans? Well, I would give an example that uh, the oil industry has been pushing for drilling in the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of Alaska, for example, and they get all kinds of tax benefits for that kind of deep water drilling, and they were able to do so during the Bush period with absolutely no oversight whatsoever, hence the Deepwater Horizon disaster. 
Most Americans experience the oil industry in two places, at the gas pump where prices often rise because of speculation, not just supply and demand, and also through TV advertising that paints this very profitable business in the most positive of terms. I'm still here and so is BP. We're committed to the Gulf for everyone who loves it and everyone who calls it home. That's good for our country's energy security and our economy. Which brings us to another set of corporations, the media companies. Jeff Cohn has been in the media and written books about its impact in shaping how Americans think about their country and its system of power. He says media companies push propaganda for war. It's the same exact media qu quoting the same exact experts that pushed our country and the world into a war with Iraq. And we were told by these media, oh, we're so sorry, we didn't know, you know, we made a mistake, next time we'll be more vigilant. But here we are next time, 10 years later, and the same media are blowing smoke about a weapons program in Iran that doesn't exist. There was no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq either. And so we're hearing, uh, it's, it's like, uh, you know, when the war drums are beating, and I worked in mainstream television news in this country during the run-up to the Iraq war. When the war drums are beating, they don't let you put on opposing views. We tried to get opposing views that question the evidence, the intelligence that would justify an attack on Iraq, but we were kicked off the air. And now you're finding it's, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare that's happening again. At the same time, Jeff, most people who work in major media, and I, of course, did as well, don't believe this. They don't buy this. They feel like they do have the freedom uh, to, to cover issues uh, and that the uh, networks are much more diverse in their right. point of view than outsiders like you uh, right. and maybe now me would right. say. Well, the, the way to rebut that fiction is just to look at what happened in the wake of the Iraq invasion. Those of us who questioned the evidence that this, they were a weapons of mass destruction threat, we were totally right, and most of us got kicked out of the TV networks. The people who got it wrong have promoted up. So this idea of diversity in the mainstream media or good journalism will win out certainly hasn't been proven in the last 10 years where the, the journalists who got it right have been punished, sanctioned, or kicked out of the media. And the journalists who got it wrong, most of them have more power today to blow smoke at Iran than they had even when uh, they were blowing smoke at Iraq. Those people, the people who own institutions, are usually very conscious of their power, not just as individuals, but as part of a dominant class, says independent TV producer Brian Drolet. So there's a lot of talk here about Democrats and Republicans. Should we vote for the Democrats? Should we vote for the Republicans? There's a lot of talk about, you know, the rich versus the 99%. But it's, it's kind of, you know, the, the, there's a certain kind of amnesia about the structure of our society that at one point in this country at least had some currency. You know, in the 30s and even in the 60s, you could talk about the working class. Nobody talks about the working class. It's all about there's a middle class and then there's the 1%. As if there's, you know, and I guess then there's some, you know, poor blacks and Latinos or something, right? And I think that that word has been sanitized and scrubbed out of the vocabulary of the people of the United States, including out of the vocabulary of the left. 
Now that's not the entire left, but even the people that use the word class don't seem to have the ability to, to phrase it in a way that actually means something to people. To talk about class is not to talk about a conspiracy, but a complex system that's evolved over the years. A system that is stratified and uses campaign contributions and lobbying to ensure that the politicians do the bidding of the companies. So these are the building blocks of the analysis we'll explore in this series on Who Rules America. The argument is simple but hard for many Americans to comprehend because many of us want to believe the myths we learned in school that make us feel superior to other countries and other peoples. This has been called American exceptionalism. Many in America believe that God created this country as the greatest country on earth, and that's what makes it so special. You really have to start with that as a basis for how the United States was founded. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is one leader of America's indigenous people, the first Americans. They were the ones uh, to be eliminated uh, because it was their land that was wanted, not even their labor. Like in, in Latin America, uh, they, the indigenous people were enslaved and, and made into peasants, uh, peons. But in North America, the Anglo-colonialism Anglo in Canada, U.S., New Zealand, and Australia had the motive of simply wiping them out and taking their land. So it's not just that they weren't included, they, they were to be eliminated. And so questions about the custodians of real power and who rules America lead back to debates on how to remake power, how to challenge its distribution and make it more transparent and accountable. These are the issues that the Occupy Wall Street movement is raising as it challenges institutional power in an attempt to revive grassroots democracy. David DeGraw explains Occupy's origins. I mean, it was like such a confluence of events. You know, everything was moving in this direction. You know, I, I was I was looking at around the world. You know, there's there's protests happening in Egypt, and then it moved to you know the Arab Spring, Tunisia, and all throughout Europe. It came back, and it was just a matter of time before it hit the United States. And really, if you look, the the occupations globally, you know, they they became like the thing to do. So it's just a natural progression for it to show up here. I feel like it shows up here because, you know, even though wealth is so concentrated, you know, the, the people have a, a media system where they're so propagandized and they feel isolated. But, you know, Occupy shows that people are, you know, not suffering alone. They're coming out and, and raising awareness and we change the national discourse. The movement is up against powerful forces with large budgets and the backing of police forces and the political establishment. While these activists are on the front lines of the fight for a people-ruled America, many of its people share the same hope. You have a sense of class being important in this country, that they're being like an upper class or oh, God. working class? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a waitress at a very nice restaurant and it's very clear to me, you know, where what my role is and who I am, you know, and you can tell just just from the dialogue that I have with people, you know, um, 
recently I had I, I talked to a general manager of a fairly large business in our town and you know when when I mentioned that I was going to a public school you know I got kind of an eye roll and oh yeah my tax dollars pay for that you know and it's so you feel like there's all this resentment against working people kind of feeling like they don't deserve what they're what little they're getting absolutely absolutely and especially you know with with the recent attacks on public sector employees like on on, on teachers and you know people are, are saying you know they don't deserve those benefits we all don't get those benefits so so they don't deserve them either you know or like why is it the conversation maybe we should all work to get those for everyone instead of taking it away from the few that do have them you know, when, when I hear you talking, uh, you know, I realize there's a, such a bigger picture here that most people even understand that we have, you know, a country where the dream is slipping away for so many people uh, and they don't feel particularly powerful. They don't feel like they can do anything. They can achieve anything. They can make a difference. Right. Well, I think the dream has shifted to uh, hopefully I wake up tomorrow and I'll be able to pay my rent and keep a roof over my head, you know, or it's just like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll work on achieving my dream tomorrow, but today, you know, I have to have to go to class you know and I have to you know I have to get my work done I have to go to work and I have to try to squeeze a couple hours of sleep in and then you know and it's now you're here at this conference mm -hmm. with all these brilliant theoreticians and analysts and professors and experts and leaders mm -hmm. and how do you feel about this this idea that people have to get together to make a difference I think it's wonderful <laughs> I I'm I feel so blessed to be able to be here with people like that because I want to learn, you know, somebody had you know had said to me, Well why don't you leave where you are? And I don't think that's the answer. I think that it's my job as somebody who cares about these things to learn from these people, to learn from these brilliant minds and so I can take this back to people and, 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 and show them and explain to them where we don't have access to this kind of thing every day, you know, and so hopefully try to enlighten them a little bit. Erin expresses the hopes of many ordinary Americans who want to reshape the nature of power so that the 99%, not just the 1%, can rule. But as you can see in here, it's not a battle she feels she is winning. Perhaps that's why she, like many, want to know who rules America. The question of who rules America has been debated throughout America's own history. It was originally raised and answered to some degree by the American Revolution in the 1770s that fought for independence from the British crown so that Americans, at least some Americans, could rule themselves, or at least they hoped they could. We're, we're at Columbia University uh, with uh, Dr. Eric Foner, a historian and writer uh, and teacher. Uh, here at the university for a long, long period rights, of time. Right I think right what is unusual today is two things. One, 
the degree of inequality. Never before has the very, very top, the 1%, had so much of the national income and wealth in its own hands. And, uh, you know, so that the gap is greater than ever before. And secondly, um, you know, Occupy Wall Street is not primarily a movement of farmers, of laborers. It doesn't have the same base. People need to learn history. That's part of our job, to know that this issue has been around for a long time. There was nothing un-American about raising the question of economic plutocracy, economic inequality. It's as American as apple pie. And, um, you know, I think that the Occupy Wall Street people are, you know, legitimate heirs of a long and venerable tradition in this country. Today, the activists of Occupy Wall Street are continuing the fight for independence and economic justice from domination by a small elite in the name of the majority, the 99% of America. I, I do think what's been brilliant about the Occupy Wall Street movement is the framing of the 1% versus the 99%. And I think, I, think, I think what we basically have is an undemocratic power structure that goes across political, economic, social and cultural lines. What kind of impact has Occupy Wall Street had in raising basic questions about the nature of power in America? We asked sociologist Stanley Aronowitz. It's had, it has an impact on perception. It has changed the conversation. The question is whether or not it will be able to change policy. And the argument that I would make is that it should not worry about changing policy in the short run. The only way to change policy in the long run is going to be to create even a, a bigger movement. And in order to create that bigger movement, what it has to do is it has to ask the question, what kind of a life do we want to lead? What is the good life? What is the vision of the way in which we want to live? David DeGraw coined the 99% 1% phrase and was an early Occupy organizer. He explained why who rules America remains an urgent issue. So you have big banks and concentrated wealth that's just rigged the political process. Uh, you know, in investigating it, we have a country where U.S. millionaire households have $46 trillion of wealth. It's just a mind-boggling number. So, you know, over the past generation, all the wealth has gone to the top. You know, really it's one-tenth of 1%, more than 1%. But, uh, you know, breaking it down even further, you have 400 people who have as much wealth as 155 million Americans. So that's 400 people who have as much wealth as half the population. The seeds of a battle that many of the occupiers see as a new American revolution is not really new, but deeply rooted in the unresolved history of conflict in the United States between those who own and control its resources and those who want economic equality. So the question is, who rules America? And that's a funny question because then you talk about power. Uh, the first thing you have to understand is America is a business venture. Like, stolen land, stolen, stolen property, capitalism, and it's just about making money. You know, many revolutions start at the top. In other words, the people who began the struggle against Great Britain were merchants in Boston and New York plantation owners in Virginia. You know, most of the founders in Virginia are slave owners. But what happens is, as the struggle intensifies, they have to generate support among ordinary people. And when you do that, you break open the political system and you open the door for very, very different kinds of demands. Slaves start demanding their own freedom. Uh, women, Native Americans, start demanding greater equality. So what happens at the beginning when a 
you know, a, a more privileged class begins the resistance, uh, that doesn't necessarily tell you how the whole process is going to take place. This conflict between the 1%, actually the 0.001%, and the 99% had its echoes here in the home of America's anti-colonial uprising, in the back streets of Boston, where a freedom trail today commemorates a massacre by the British and a fight for liberty. And that's where we'll take you next. Was the American Revolution really a revolution? The British thought it was a revolution, no question about that. It, it was not a social upheaval in the way, let us say, the French Revolution was, but it certainly overthrew an entire system of government. It replaced the ruling class with another one, so that seems to be what a revolution is about. And it raised these questions of equality in the society. Not, not just equality in terms of 1% and 99%, but the role of slavery in American life, the status of women in American life. It unleashed a kind of um, uh, uh, struggle for equality among all sorts of groups, which continued long after the revolution was over. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. That's one of the most famous poems of the American Revolution. And here we are in front of the statue of Paul Revere, the man who alerted all of Massachusetts to the British troops coming into their communities. We're on the Freedom Trail in Boston, where the American Revolution is remembered. Well, what kind of a revolution was it? What actually happened here in Boston back in the 1700s? What have we learned since then? Thousands of tourists and students visit these revolutionary monuments every day, but most have only a foggy idea of what really happened and tend to repeat the mythologies that are taught in their schools. Here was Paul Revere. Paul Revere was one of the great revolutionary heroes. So you kids, here to see the statue of Paul Revere? Yes, we are. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about it? Sure. We're sure. doing a little TV program here. Yeah. Who was Paul Revere? What was this all about? Do you know? He, he was a founding father. Ride. Yeah, yeah. Midnight Ride. To warn about the British for coming. British. Did you know that he was a very rich businessman, a yes. silversmith yes. here in Boston, and that uh, he wanted to be in the Continental Army and they wouldn't let him in? Did you know that? I didn't know that. Did, know that. Did you know that in Boston, there was this merchant class, you know, business leaders, the 1%, who were really running the whole show uh, in many ways. And that the people were not as involved because back then there were slaves, mm -hmm. there were yes. indentured servants. Uh, there were a lot of people who didn't have a say in what was going on. Did you know about that? No idea. I didn't know anything about Paul Revere. <laughs> we would love to learn from him. Yeah. Yeah. about the revolution. Yeah. Okay. I'm supposed to learn about it in history, but I don't think. My brother Bill here has taught history uh, to students in Massachusetts for many, many, many years and has followed, you know, the various debates about our history. What was it about this revolution? Uh, you know, was it a popular uprising or was it sort of led by elites here in Boston? Well, both were true. There were popular elements. Uh, ordinary people did resent the British. Uh, ordinary people did participate in riots and boycotts. Uh, but there was a 1% back then. Uh, the leaders of the revolution uh, both led it and channeled it. Uh, they were certainly not above using words like liberty and freedom uh, to deflect and distract people from their own discontents 
in the colonies. And their own interests. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the business class of Boston didn't want more taxes on their products. They wanted to compete with the British goods. They felt yeah. they, they shouldn't be taxed. And as a result, there was the tea, original Tea Party here in Boston. Right. And there were, uh, you know, merchants like uh, John Hancock, who was into smuggling goods. And you're right, they didn't want to pay British taxes. I mean, there were other factors behind the revolution as well. But when this revolution was codified in 1787 at the Constitutional Convention, the people who were invited were the large landowners, the slave owners, the merchant class, no women, no Indians, no blacks, no working people. Actually, there were slaves that were inspired by the revolution to try mm -hmm. to get their freedom. Mm -hmm. Some actually did. I think the idea of the revolution and the idea of democracy uh, were radical, inspiring, revolutionary uh, in ways that, that actually might have made the leaders uncomfortable since some of them themselves owned slaves. Uh, they, they, they really didn't want this to go viral in the way it, it did around the world. So who ruled America then? In a way, their grandchildren are, ru are ru ruling it today. And sometimes direct descendants of those people. So, uh, you know, I mean, there was a certain amount of class mobility, uh, indentured servitude disintegrated due to the chaos of the revolution. But I don't think the people who led the revolution really intended a social revolution. That was really not what they were thinking about. After the revolution, people like Daniel Shays in Western Massachusetts, a farmer, a captain in the revolution, uh, did try to um, inspire, organize another rebellion against those who he saw as replacing his British masters. This time, they were the colonial leaders. So here we are, 225 years after the Shays Rebellion rocked Western Massachusetts in a challenge to the 1% of those times. We have a memorial for Daniel Shays and the men who fought with him. And what's interesting is we have American flags being put in a sense almost at his tombstone here, marking support for the values and the aspirations that he fought for. My name is Dave Rothstein. You're at the Stagecoach Tavern in Western Massachusetts, town of Sheffield. And this painting is a painting of Daniel Shays' militiamen. Uh, Daniel Shays fought in the revolution. They came back from the revolution and found their farms being foreclosed and many put in prison because of the same debt crisis that we're experiencing now. Uh, there are many similarities, but essentially one of the promises of the revolution was to annul the foreign debt. And the farmers came home and discovered the debt was even greater and the banks were even tougher. Today, the Shays Rebellion is mostly forgotten, but it lives on on YouTube with songs and dramatic recreations. Shays now unsheathed his sword and ordered the fife and drum players to strike up a tune. The men began marching in cadence. The irony, says historian Eric Foner, is that Shays was just a front man for a mass movement. 
In fact, it was the opponents who said it's Shays' rebellion in order to find a kind of boogeyman, you know, they could attack. So let's forget about Shays as a person and think about the mass movement, the farmers, the ordinary laborers who took to the streets, shut down the courts, and said, wait a minute, we had a revolution. We have installed a government that's supposed to represent the people here in Massachusetts, and yet it's talking, you know, it's the bankers and the landowners and the merchants who are getting the benefit of everything. It was the first Occupy Wall Street movement. Uh, they petitioned the government in Boston for redress, and the government ignored the petitions. And they're having still had their arms, they went to these court sites and picketed to prevent the courts from sitting. Succeeded to some extent until private militias were formed and the Massachusetts militias were formed to suppress it. It was suppressed right near here, the, right? The last battle was fought in Sheffield. It was led by Brigadier Ashley, who's the Ashley House is still here. And Colonel Ashley, his parents, were one of the heroes of the revolution. So here we have the same family uh, uh, building independence, but then trying to suppress it. If many white Americans were disappointed by the achievements of the American Revolution, what about blacks and Native Americans? In 1730, when Sheffield was incorporated, there were 30 black families in Sheffield. Half were slaves, half were free. But the famous story is, again, at the Ashley House, one of the servants, Elizabeth Freeman, called Ma Betts, overheard all the talk about the Massachusetts Declaration of Independence at the dining table. And it occurred to her that maybe she might qualify. And she actually filed in the court of Great Barrington and won her freedom. So here you have the court giving freedom on one hand and suppressing freedom on the other. Years later, a small black community in the area that Daniel Shays made famous became the home of a young man who had become a leader of the fight for civil rights. He coupled concerns for racial equality with demands for economic justice. Today, in the center of his hometown of Great Barrington, Massachusetts, there's a wall mural celebrating his political and intellectual contributions. It includes quotes from President Barack Obama and Martin Luther King. Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois was one of the titan giants of the 20th century, although, of course, he's born in the 19th century. Du Bois put forward the issues which are still with us, the race issue in America. You know, he said in 1903, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. It's still a problem in this country and around the world. Du Bois talked about economic equality and how to gain that, and he grappled with these questions. He's a brilliant writer, a brilliant thinker, and much of what he said is still relevant, uh, I think, to thinking about American society. What about Native Americans? They were the ones uh, to be eliminated uh, because it was their land that was wanted, not even their labor. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is part of America's indigenous movements and says the people we call Indians were being exterminated. We asked her about the American Revolution. It wasn't a revolution. It was a war of independence from the, you know, the colonial overpower. But it wasn't an anti-colonial revolution like the Bolivarian revolutions in South America or the Haitian Revolution. So there are many different, even competing narratives about the origins of the United States. 
The United States, of course, was founded as a settler state, as a colonial state, became an imperialist power. And uh, the democracy has always been uh, an oligarchic democracy, you know, a capitalist democracy with a rhetoric of, um, of uh, um, populism, which is so strongly based on race. That is, if you're not you're not black, if you're not a slave, um, you're not indigenous, if you're white and a settler, then everyone could be a king, everyone can own land and be a landlord. So all these peasants who came as settlers, the dream is to be, you know, be the king of the hill. And uh, so it's a very, um, it's a very insidious kind of democracy because it's a, it's a, an illusion. Illusion or not, this is a subject that needs to be examined if we are to understand who rules America, the origins of the 1%, and then teach about it. So this is all part of the history that most Americans probably don't know. Did you find when you were teaching students here that many of them just didn't know much about their own history? I think there are many students that I taught uh, in one of the towns that fought at Concord who were never even in the spot we're standing in now. And I think that that's true, that, that many kids were not familiar with that history, beyond local battlefields and so on. The other thing about the Revolutionary War, which is relevant to today because we live in a globalized world, mm -hmm. is that this revolution started locally here in Boston, but mm -hmm. soon the British were involved, the, the Dutch, mm -hmm. the French. Mm -hmm. It became a war of many different countries all fighting on American mm -hmm. soil. Well, very true, and the, the, the French intervention was, was very critical to our success. It wasn't all through the force and valor of our arms. Uh, there were other people involved. But I think the, you know, the idea itself has played a revolutionary role in history. But the idea itself did not create a deep social revolution in the United States. And to this day, people are distracted by um, words like liberty and freedom and justice uh, in the same way that they were back then. Ironically, the original Tea Party, which inspired the modern right-wing Tea Party movement today, was actually a protest against an earlier form of corporate imperialism. Why was tea the issue, not corn or whiskey or something like that? It was because the East India Company had gone bankrupt in China and the crown, the British crown, bailed them out so they wouldn't, you know, lose their, lose their assets. But then the crown looked around and said, well, what does the company have that we can sell? Well, it turned out what they had was tea. So they decided to market the tea. And that's why it was tea that was uh, the tax issue. So here you have a big financial failure and the, the, it was global, the, the, uh, the uh, implications rippled across the Pacific, rippled across the Atlantic, and we have the Boston Tea Party. Throughout our history, there have been sort of conspiracy theories about all of this. I mean, today, for example, both the right and the left seems to see the Federal Reserve Bank as sort of a, a conspiracy concocted in 1913 without any proper process and kind of running the show. Yeah, well, you know, conspiracy theories, conspiracy thinking is deeply embedded in our political culture. My PhD supervisor, my mentor, Richard Hofstetter, wrote the famous 
book in the 1960s, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, in which he traced out various kinds of conspiratorial thinking, uh, whether it was Catholics who were in the before the Civil War trying to undermine America, or, uh, you know, various other groups at various times, immigrants, others trying to, you know, destroy the American culture, uh, or the Trilateral Commission, remember them in the 1970s were supposedly ruling the whole world. Now the Federal Reserve, right, if we only abolished the Federal Reserve Bank, everything would go back to some utopia of the past. Throughout U.S. history, you see various right-wing movements point out scapegoats in the society, and they're usually the, the folks who are already marginalized in some way or another. And, and what happens is that there comes a moment when it becomes really useful for the elite powers, whether they're in government or corporations, to encourage these movements. So you get a Tea Party, or you get a militia movement like in the 90s, or you get the Ku Klux Klan in the 1800s. And what this is all about is taking angry, mostly white people who are mostly somewhat privileged and convincing them that they're about to fall down the social economic ladder. I guess the basic problem with conspiracy theories is that no group can fully determine what happens. Even people with great power launch things and then they kind of lose control of them and things happen in a way that is unpredictable. When you look back at history, mm -hmm. and, and you maybe can see, because of, you know, it's a long time ago, all mm -hmm. of these forces, mm -hmm. yet today, somehow, in the news, we never see these forces. What we see are politicians spouting various, uh, you know, rhetoric and speeches, but we don't really know whose interests they're serving, who's behind the scenes. Well, this is why we need research. We need, uh, we need an understanding of who rules America because the mythology today is that it is the people who rule America. And uh, most folks don't know a great deal in, in terms of specifics about the role that corporations play, um, the way politicians are tied to corporate interests. Change is possible. I think when one talks about who rules America and a power elite, one should not use that to simply fall into a kind of quietism and say, well, nothing is possible, no change is possible, everything's under control. Many of the major popular movements in our history have been big surprises, you know? Nobody expected them to come. And I think the same thing with Occupy Wall Street. Nobody expected Occupy Wall Street to come up simply, simply out of nowhere. And so I think, we, you know, we have seen that over and over again in our history, and we will continue to. People say the 1% and, you know, we are the 99%. But, you know, when I broke down the numbers, it was really, it, it, it is a couple hundred people in this country that have immense wealth. If you look at the, if you look at our election process, it's something like, uh, you know, one hundredth of 1% accounts for something like 80% of the campaign finance. I mean, that's insanity. I mean, it's completely, it's a rigged game. And now the ball of history has been passed to a new generation, fighting to transform a large and complex country with many power centers. But just as in the past, it is determined minorities who make the difference. An elite made the American Revolution, and as we will see, a power elite still rules.
Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president, Ike for president. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. When retired World War II General Dwight David Eisenhower ran for president, he was hailed as a military savior, an all-American hero from the plains of Kansas. Everybody likes Ike for president, hang out the banner, beat the drum, take Ike to Washington. Now is the time for all good Americans to come to the aid of their country. Vote for Eisenhower. No one expected that in his farewell address he would identify and oppose the emergence of a new power constellation the military-industrial complex. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. His was a prophetic speech, especially for a military leader who saw that a fusion of government and corporate power could lead to what he called unwarranted influence and misplaced power. Fifty years later, on the warning's anniversary, President Eisenhower's own granddaughter, Susan, documented how the military-industrial complex had grown. She wrote, in less than 10 years, our military and security expenditures have increased by 119 percent. This new book on the clout of the military-industrial complex by William Hartung details the power it wields. He told me how it works military contractors, uniform military, the Pentagon, uh, basically pushing their interest at the expense of taxpayer, national security, uh, in case, some cases their civil liberties. Is it a description of, of an actual reality? Well, the military-industrial complex is probably more real now than it was when Eisenhower coined the phrase. A company like Lockheed Martin, not only are they building missiles, uh, they're building cluster bombs, they're building, uh, you know, submarines. At the same time, uh, they're helping process your taxes. They're counting the census. They're running fingerprint databases for the FBI. So it's kind of morphed from just the military-industrial complex to sort of the national security state. So you've got surveillance as well as weapons building. Hartung says these companies, in effect, dictate our foreign policy. They've sort of captured our foreign policy and captured our military policy. Uh, really for special interest purposes to a large degree. Please download his entire film and watch it and look at his other films as well because he used his skills as an investigative journalist, an economist, and a filmmaker. He won a lot of awards, well-deserved. Thank you all for watching and have a nice day. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way.
For only love.